darkness and all its inflections for upended expectations. For every time we're ambushed by trivial or stupefying irony, for pure incredulity, we need the inverted exclamation point. For the dropped smile, the limp handshake, for whoever has just unwrapped a dumb gift, or taken the first sip of a flat beer, or felt love, or pond ice give way underfoot. We deserve it. We need it for the air pocket, the scratch shot, the child whose ball doesn't bounce back, the flat tire at Journey's outset, the odyssey that ends up in evil. But mainly because I need it here and now. As I sit outside the Cafe Reggio, staring at my espresso and cannoli, after this middle-aged couple came strolling by, and he suddenly veered and sneezed all over my And she said to him, see, that's why I don't like you.
welcome to Washington Ethical Society. I'm your turkey intern, Laura Solomon, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm so glad to be here and so glad you are here with us this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning although we'd love it if you could check in on social media first. And now I invite Adam to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Adam is an usher, and we are so grateful for the ways ushers provide a warm welcome to all who come through our doors. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice across all borders. Thank you. As Adam lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful that people in Flint, Michigan still do not have clean water. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. As you feel comfortable, settle into your seat and take one full, deep breath. Allow your body to arrive in this place. Whatever your body brings here today, allow it to arrive. If there is discomfort 
or achiness or pain, bring it in. If there is energy or healing, bring it in. Allow your mind to arrive here. If the thoughts are joyful, pleasant, or relieved, allow them to be. If the thoughts are worried, angry, sad, grief-stricken, allow them to be. Allow your entire self to be just for a moment, set aside the story, the worries, the thoughts. Welcome yourself to this moment, just as you are.
Josh and Nicole, thank you so much for that beautiful piece, which is Josh's. That's your piece, right? That was um, very moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, actually, it's that quiet right after the music where everyone's just... Um, and thank you, Laura. It is so good to have you with us here at WES, and I'm delighted to have you up on the platform for sort of the first full platform service. I am uh, a believer in um, sort of knowing what I'm good at, knowing what I'm not good at, um, and then writing entire platforms directed toward the thing I'm not good at um, as a way of overcompensating. So that's what today is. You're welcome. <laughs> um, some of you know that I really enjoy the Enneagram model, which is just a, a way of thinking about personality, like all of the ways of thinking about personality, right? You know, they're all useful to the extent that they help us be self-reflective. I don't ever think that there's, you know, magic or even science in any of the models. Um, but I do like the Enneagram. It's been helpful to me. Minor plug, we have a, our second Enneagram workshop coming up at the end of this month. We had one last spring, which was um, very well received, and so the same person is coming back and offering part two, but you can still take it if you haven't taken part one. There's just a little bit of homework uh, prep. Anyway, the Enneagram um, offers these different ways of looking at personality, and um, I am number seven, which is sometimes called the enthusiast. Um, the number, there are already people are laughing at me. I would just like to note that for the video so you can tell. Um, so the enthusiast, the idea behind the enthusiast is that it's someone who's always looking for something wonderful to be happening. You know, always sort of expecting that things will work out, and if they don't work out, moving very quickly on to the next thing. You know, that's, uh, that didn't work, no problem, that's okay. We're going to have fun, we're still going to have fun, it's going to be fun, we're having fun. Um, and, and some of the positive things about the enthusiast, because everything has a positive and a negative side, right? Some of the positive things are, you know, that I can pivot really quite quickly. If something doesn't work out, I'm able to integrate that information pretty quick and move on to the next possibility. In fact, I sometimes move on so quickly in my own life. This happened especially when I was um, younger and obviously much less, you know, fully integrated as a human. Um, <laughs> I would move on so quickly that I would actually forget about the thing that hadn't worked out. I had a whole, I applied for a, a fellowship in college that I didn't get, and I forgot about it until years later when it came up, and I thought, oh yeah, that was a thing that didn't work out. But I pivoted, no problem, new thing, next thing. So that's a, a positive about that particular personality type. The negative, of course, it's not really bad, it's fine, it's all fine, it's okay, I'm okay, you're okay. The negative is that I can sometimes move so quickly to the next possibility that I forget to let the loss of the first one sink in, to even notice what I'm feeling. I am not alone, I think in that experience. Our whole society actually is sometimes built along those enthusiast lines, 
that we're supposed to be just fine, right? Someone passes you in the street and says, how are you? And the appropriate answer is, great, thanks, how are you? Fine, thanks, good, thanks. Sometimes you can only tell the real answer based on how clipped the fine thanks is. We are not writ large a society, a culture, a country that is great at sitting with loss, sitting with unmet expectations. Now, I want to make just a brief note before I go on that, that sitting with loss and unmet expectations doesn't exactly mean waiting to move on. I do believe that you can both pivot and move forward even while holding the space of loss and grief in your life. We hear a lot these days about the idea that grief after someone has died doesn't have a particular time frame. And I believe that to be so true, and I've seen that so many times as I've accompanied people who have mourned in different ways, and, and there is no right time frame for what moving on looks like, right? What is important is that no matter what's happening over here with movement, forward or with, that enough space, enough care and attention is paid to the loss experience. Sometimes the grief of losing someone requires us to notice the specificity of what we have lost. One person wrote to me about her experience with unmet expectations. She talked about all of the things that her husband was supposed to do with her. Teach their daughter to drive, fix the technical problems in the house, call Verizon wireless when it didn't work right. Except that he died young and without warning. She wrote, how I handled it, not always well, but by believing the world would support me when I couldn't manage it. And it seemed to always find ways, though sometimes unexpected ways. I am learning, she wrote, to stop trying to control things and to focus on riding the waves through the good and the bad. First and foremost, I opened my heart and let it break, heal, break again, and trust that the cycle will continue both the breaking and the healing. Sometimes people write to me with their thoughts, and I think, well, that's perfect. I could just put that up on a slide. And we'd have all the wisdom this platform can offer. The breaking and the healing again and again. Sometimes the grief that we have and have to hold is not about death and the loss associated with death, but rather about lives that go very differently than we might have expected or hoped. 
One person wrote to me about raising children whose lives did not go as he had imagined and dreamed. He wrote, when reality starts to intersect with hope, you don't want to accept reality. You imagine that if you just try harder as a parent, it will get better. But sometimes, as hard as you try, nothing makes a difference. The thing about grieving what could have been is you always question what could have been. So what's next, he wrote. We learned. We admitted what we missed and could have done better. We acknowledged what was lost, but we'll never get back. We took a hard look at the truth that there are some dreams we had that must be mourned because they are dead. And dead love must be mourned, not ignored. Sometimes the unmet expectation, the loss that we are holding is not about another person, but about a whole community. I remember at one point I got a whole packet of brochures um, from the Unitarian Universalist Association, I think, um, intended for newcomers to a congregation. There were all the typical ones, you know, what, what will my child learn in Sunday school, right? And, um, you know, how can I be involved in small groups? And one of them had almost no pictures. It was all text. It was like, like a, a full trifold of just text, I think. Robin probably, yep, Robin's in the back shaking her head. Nope, nope, nope. Um, the brochure was titled something like, When Your Congregation Disappoints You. <laughs> I couldn't quite imagine giving it to a first-time visitor. But I thought it might be right for the folks who end up joining this community. When your congregation disappoints you, when a community doesn't live up to what you hoped, when the PTA doesn't provide what your children need. We talk a lot about the importance of staying at the table of members in a community like ours continuing to work together, and that is important. But just like any unmet expectation, Sometimes, too, there is a need to simply notice the loss, to grieve what was not. Sometimes the grief, the loss we hold is about our own selves, our own bodies or minds, when they don't cooperate with what we think should happen. One person wrote to me, I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that mental health crises may keep coming up at different points in my life. And reframing that knowledge from, I'm the worst failure on the planet to, but I keep getting to learn how to bounce back from this better and better. And learning to be a little more patient with myself. Some of you know that, um, oh gosh, about um, six, 15, some number of years ago now, well before I came here to this community, um, uh, just before I got married, I was diagnosed with a tumor 
in my, uh, in my back. It was a desmoid tumor, very rare, three in one million. I feel special. Um, everything's fine. I'm fine. I'm well past the time of needing to worry about its return. Knock on wood. <clears throat> and, um, uh, but, but I had to have surgery and radiation and, and go through treatment. And then, of course, when that was all done, um, because they had removed my whole right rhomboid muscle, um, turns out it's convenient to have all the muscles um, that you originally came with, um, I did a fair amount of PT. Um, and I did several sets of PT, you know, right after the surgery and radiation, and then six months later, and then a couple years after that. And, and um, I'm not the best PT patient. I don't do the exercises at home. Um, I do at least tell them I don't do the exercises at home. I am an honest, bad PT patient. But by the third round, I really was trying. I, I was trying to do those exercises as much as possible. I was concentrating really hard. I was going to PT twice a week. And, um, and I was getting frustrated that I still had not made the progress that I wanted to make. The physical therapist I was working with said what was hands down the most helpful information, the most um, the most kind uh, response I received through that whole recovery time. He said, wait, you know, right, that it's not going to get totally better. It's, you're never going to be able to do what you did before. We're not trying for 100%. 100% is gone. Instead, let's try for whatever annoying PT exercise he was trying to get me to do at that time. I don't remember anything about the PT exercises that I was doing. I don't remember about the physical progress that I made that particular bout. But I remember the gift of learning what I had lost the gift of being invited to notice that it was never going to be the same. That trying to make that happen wasn't useful anymore. It was that awareness that allowed me to move from frustrated and annoyed, unwilling really to exercise because I couldn't do it the way I wanted to, to the person at the gym that modifies everything so I can do what I am able. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is famous for her concept of the five stages of grief. We most associate those stages with loss through death. They will be, I imagine, familiar to you. Denial, this isn't happening. Anger. How could this have happened? I'm furious. Bargaining. Maybe I can change it somehow. Depression. Sadness and grief. And acceptance. Kubler-Ross tells us that we can't get to that final stage unless we take the time to go through the first four. They may happen on very different timelines for different people, but almost every 
one of those stages will show up for almost every one of us. And what I have found in my life, and perhaps you have in yours, is that those stages of grief are not only when we lose someone to death and are in that kind of mourning, but that those stages of grief show up in many different ways. When we have unmet expectations all along the spectrum, from the cannoli that was sneezed on to the life that has not worked out the way we imagined. Many folks know about our Remembrance Day tradition here at the Ethical Society. We hold Remembrance Day um, on a Sunday close to Halloween and Sawain and All Souls Day, that day that so many different cultures have noted as important. Our Remembrance Day this year is the first Sunday of November, as it was last year. And on Remembrance Day, people bring with them the names of those they have lost, and if they choose, light a candle or say the name aloud. Remembrance Day is one of those Sundays that almost everyone marks on their calendars. Some people mark it on their calendars because they want to make sure to be there, because every year it is important to them to come forward and speak perhaps the same name each year, perhaps a different name. Some people mark it on their calendars so that they can be sure not to come to West that day because they really can't be here in that space, in that time. And that's fine. The experience of sort of collective mourning, collective grief can be transformative and moving for some and too much for others. What feels important to me is that each of us have some space in our lives, at least once a year, where we do let ourselves settle in to the losses that we hold, to the people that we grieve, to the ways that life didn't work out as we anticipated. The importance of settling into loss is that it allows us to move forward on those stages that Kubler-Ross tells us about, to move forward into acceptance. There's another thinker who has been really helpful to me at times in my life when I have been experiencing unmet expectations, loss, things not working out the way I expected. That is William Bridges, who is a sort of classic self-help author. Um, his famous book is Transitions, but he's written several books along the same lines. Bridges talks about the idea that many of us see our lives as beginning, middle, end. And in fact, we see everything that happens in our lives as being part of a beginning, a middle, and an end, right in that order. What Bridges tells us is that, in fact, life usually shows up in reverse order. Something ends. We find ourselves in a middle, 
and we don't yet know what the beginning is. Bridges talks about our desire to rush from end to beginning as quickly as possible, as in Enneagram 7, I relate to that. Yes, please, end is over. Let's move forward to beginning. He encourages us to stay in the middle space, in what possibly only ministers refer to as the liminal space. I have all these words that my father will call me on. That's minister talk. Nobody knows what you're talking about. It's okay. I still like it. The liminal space, the space in between, the space of uncertainty. That middle space is where we are called to be during loss. Sometimes, in fact, if we move too quickly into the beginning, we have missed the stage of in-between, the growth that we can find there, the self-knowledge. Sometimes if we move too quickly to the next beginning, we find that we haven't begun it right after all. And so we go back into the middle space. Bridges puts it this way. We resist transition, he writes, not because we can't accept the change, but because we can't accept letting go of that piece of ourselves that we have to give up when and because the situation has changed. I couldn't even get myself to the gym, to the yoga class, to the weightlifting room because I was so fixated on trying to get back to what I had had before. Minus a rhomboid muscle, there is no what I had before. I needed the words of that kind physical therapist. You won't get there from here. There is gone. A new way may be possible, but not until you feel the loss. I wonder sometimes whether the challenge of feeling loss that so many of us grapple with, the pain we experience in sitting with loss, is because it reminds us that so much is out of our control. We wish that we were able to plan our lives out beginning, middle, end, that things worked out just exactly as we imagined them. Even here in a humanist congregation where the majority of folks in our community do not resonate with the idea of a plan under some divinity's control. A surprising number of us still think that perhaps we're in control of the plan. <laughs> and so each time when we are reminded that we are not, we are invited to sit more deeply with the worry, the sadness, the pain of that. Sitting with any individual unmet expectation, whether it is small or large, 
reminds us that our whole life is out of our control. That things happen because of others in our lives, because of random chance, because of which way we drove to work that morning, whether or not we picked up the phone at the right time. Ultimately, a piece of our desire to move too quickly away from loss and grief and unmet expectations is our wish that we could have made it different, that we could make everything different if we had only made some different choice. Sometimes that is indeed true. Sometimes part of being in the liminal space, the in-between, is acknowledging what we did that got us there. But either way, whether there were things we ought to have changed or whether it was pure happenstance that brought us to the in-between, we move from it quickly at our detriment, I think. None of us particularly enjoy wallowing in hard feelings, me least of all. And yet I know that when I am able to be honest about the liminal space, I prepare myself so differently for the next step, for the beginning that is to come. At the end of this month, we will wrap up our exploration of expectations by talking about the Buddhist practice of non-attachment, the practice of living with as few expectations as possible. That, to me, feels like PhD-level expectation thinking. Here, maybe I'm at the master's level. We are invited into simply noticing the liminal space, the loss, the unmet expectations that life offers us again and again. Child, it's a 
my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the changing of my life? Well, I've been afraid of changing because I built my life around you. But time makes you bolder and even children get older and I'm getting older too. Well, I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you. But time makes you bolder, even children get older, and I'm getting older too. Oh, I'm getting older too. Oh, to my love. Oh, climb a mountain and I turn around. And if you see my reflection in snow-covered hills, well, the landslide will bring it down. And if you see my reflection in snow-covered hills, well, the landslide will bring it down. Oh, the landslide will bring it down. This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform, or what